The verse that we'll be reading today is John 17, verses 1 to 5. Jesus prays to be glorified. After Jesus said this, he looked towards heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. Amen. Thank you so much to Stacey and Kerry. Thank you for sharing. Um, I do believe that when someone um, shares so honestly and, uh, and openly with a group of people that it opened doors, that God opens doors, we pray that that, that would be the case and that, that this ministry would be incredibly helpful um, to many people um, in the days to come. So thank you so much. If you, if you knew that, that you were about to die by execution, and you had the chance to pray for one thing um, or for something, what would you choose to pray for? It's a good question, isn't it? If you knew you were about to die, that you were about to be executed, you were on death row, uh, and you had the opportunity to pray for something, what would you choose in those moments to pray for? How would your heart lean? What would, you, what would be on your mind and in your heart, and what words would you pray to God in those moments? I'm pretty sure um, you've all heard the Lord's Prayer. Um, You could probably stand up here and recite those words. But what about the moments when the Lord prayed? What about those moments when the Lord Jesus prayed? What about the content of the prayers that Jesus prayed? We're in a section this morning known as the farewell discourse or the final words, the final discourse of Jesus It covers chapters 13 to 17 of John's gospel. And John in these chapters records the final words of Jesus, his final discussion with his disciples before his death. Those last moments that Jesus spent with his disciples in that upper room before his crucifixion. And in these moments, we get to go behind the scenes. We get to see and hear the the deep heart of Jesus. Jesus discusses many things with his disciples, but what for me appears most striking is that Jesus is preparing them. He's preparing them mentally and emotionally, spiritually, for his imminent departure, for his death, for life without his physical presence with them any longer on the earth. Jesus is preparing them. And across these chapters, chapters 13 to 17, we're we're brought deep into these solemn, sacred, upper room moments. We're brought right into that space with Jesus and the disciples. We get an up-close and personal um, listening to the heart of Jesus. Jesus does and Jesus shares a number of really key things across those chapters. Let me just do a quick summary before we come to to our passage this morning. Jesus washes his disciples' feet. He predicts his betrayal by one of them. It would be Judas, who would betray him. 
Jesus then foretells a denial from among them. Peter would deny knowing him. Imagine in those moments that there are two of them. One will betray him. One will deny him. And Jesus makes that known. Jesus continues and he proceeds to comfort the disciples. He tells them that that they're not to let their hearts be troubled. Do not be troubled. He says that he's actually preparing a place for them, that he will come back and take them to be with him where he is. Jesus goes on and explains to them and tells them that an advocate will come. One will come who will draw alongside them, who will live within them. The promised Holy Spirit will come. He will grant them supernatural peace and supernatural power, and they will need both without his presence any longer on the earth. And in an appeal for them to stay close to his heart, in John chapter 15, Jesus tells them to abide in him, to remain in him, to stay close to him. He is the vine. They are the branches. They must remain in him. They must stay close to him. Why? Because the world will hate those who follow after him. Yes, the world will hate those who follow after Jesus. And so he says, you must remain close to me. You must bind your heart to mine. Jesus continues and he he tells them that the Holy Spirit will come. He will be within them. He will be at work among them. And the Holy Spirit will testify to the world about sin and righteousness, about judgment and salvation in Jesus' name. Jesus tells them that the Holy Spirit will guide them. He will guide them into all truth and he will glorify the Son of God. Jesus then tells them that their grief will turn to joy. Isn't that what God can do? I think we've already heard a glimpse of that this morning. Jesus tells them that their grief will turn to joy. They will have peace in a troubled world and they can take heart because Jesus, the Son of God, has overcome this world. Incredible moments, sacred, holy moments and we're brought into that room with Jesus and with the disciples as he talks through all of this and then after Jesus has done all of that, he turns his face towards heaven and he prays. He prays to his father. Jesus prays. It's really interesting because when Jesus prays and we're told the content of what Jesus prayed, it's usually pretty short and pretty succinct. Ordinarily, when Jesus prayed at any length, He was on his own. He wasn't in the presence of others. He was on his own, withdrawn to be with his father. But this moment is different. This prayer is different. You see, Jesus is in the presence of his disciples. He knows that. They're witnesses. They're onlookers. They're on listeners. They're listening into this. They're hearing what he's praying. And although he's praying to the father, Jesus is very conscious that they can hear exactly what he's saying, what he's praying. One commentator says this of this moment. He says, why has the Holy Spirit seen fit to give us such a detailed account of this prayer? Why? And so that's what we're going to grapple with over these next three weeks. Why why do we have this account of this incredible prayer? Why does Jesus pray at this moment in this way in front of his disciples? And what does God want to teach us through this prayer of Jesus? as he approaches the cross, as he prepares to go to Calvary. And so we're going to explore this prayer in John 17 over these next three Sundays in the lead up to Easter. 
as we make our journey back to the cross. We're going to look at the words in the prayer of Jesus as he prepared to go to the cross. Next week, Rick will be preaching on uh, Jesus praying for his disciples. Then the following week, we're going to look at how Jesus prays in this prayer for us, for you, and for me. But this morning, we're thinking about this first part of Jesus' prayer in John chapter 17, the very first part. Because we know that the hour has come, his death is imminent, and in the shadow of the cross, Jesus reveals what his deepest concern is, and he opens this prayer as he turns his face towards heaven. He opens with his deepest concern. And what is the deepest concern coming from the lips and the heart of Jesus? Well, it's in verse 1. Glorify your son, that your son may glorify you. Father, glorify your son, that your son may glorify you. So three things for us to think about this morning from Jesus' prayer. The first thing is this. Jesus' prayer is all about God's glory. It's all about God's glory. You see, glory is a central theme in John's gospel. It's actually... Mentioned, I think the word glory is mentioned 17 times in the Gospel of John. Um, the second half of the book of John is sometimes called the book of glory. Um, John constantly speaks of the glory of God and in and through the Son of God. Glory is a massive theme throughout the pages of John's Gospel. It has more mentions of glory than the book of Revelation, believe it or not. And it's only topped by the book of Ezekiel and the Psalms, which mention the glory of God more um, than John does. But glory is a huge part of John's gospel. And here in this passage, glory is at the heart of what Jesus prays. The ancient Hebrew word for glory is kabod, which has to do with weight. Speaks of the weightiness of God. As I was preparing for this, you know, part of me was just... Just thinking, you know, I wish I could explain this well. I can't. It's very, very hard for someone like me to stand up here and describe the glory of God. But that ancient word, kabod, speaks of the weightiness of God. The weightiness of his glory, his splendor, his majesty. It's heavy. It's the weight of God. Heavy in splendor. I wish I could describe it to you. Heavy in splendor, heavy in majesty, glory is something that matters greatly above and beyond anything else. Glory carries a sense of divine authority. Okay, God is glorious. He is above all. He's over all. He's glorious over all things. Carries a sense of authority. But it also, in the Old Testament, we see that the glory of God carries a manifest visibility. For example, the glory of God fills the tabernacle in Exodus 40. Or we read in 1 Kings chapter 8, the glory of God fills the temple. And in both of those moments, the priests can't stand to minister any longer. The radiant glory of God fills the house. It's all consuming. They can't stand up any longer. They can't bear to look at the glory of God. They are literally awestruck. They can do nothing in the presence of the glory of God. It's so great. It's so weighty. Splendor is so incredible. The Greek word for glory is doxa. And in the New Testament, it speaks again of magnificence. 
It speaks of excellence, preeminence, majesty. And it's something that belongs to God. But interestingly, we know from the New Testament that glory also belongs to Jesus, to the Son of God. The glory of God is in the Son of God. The kingly majesty of the Messiah. Um, Karl Barth, who had much to say in his writings about God's glory, says this in his work, Church Dogmatics. He says this about the glory of God. He says it's the fullness, the totality, the sufficiency, the sum of the perfection of God in the irresistibility of its declaration and manifestation. I wish I could write like that. The glory of God is the fullness, the totality, the sufficiency, the sum of the perfection of God in the irresistibility of its declaration and manifestation. And then a little bit later in his work, Karl Barth sums up the glory of God with this little phrase. He says it's the superabundance, the overflowing of the perfection of the divine being. The superabundance, superabundance, the overflowing of the perfection of the divine being. Rick Warren once said this about the glory of God. I thought this was really good. He says, what is, or he asks, what is the glory of God? And he comes back with this. It is who God is. It is the essence of his nature. It's the weight of his importance. It's the radiance of his splendor. It's the demonstration of his power. And it's the atmosphere of his presence. I wonder, do we sense the glory of God when we gather like this to worship him? We ought to. We ought to sense the weight of his importance, the radiance of his splendor, demonstration of his power in an atmosphere of his presence. It's the glory of God. In his life and ministry on earth, Jesus made it clear that he had zero interest, zero interest in self-seeking human glory. Jesus had no interest, no desire for celebrity status. He could have been. In many ways, he was the greatest celebrity of his day. And he wanted nothing to do with it. When I think about that, I often think of this daft celebrity pastor thing that goes on mainly in, in America. Where, where people seem to almost worship pastors for who they are. I think Jesus, it would have made him sick, to be honest. He has no desire. No desire for celebrity, for status, for human glory. He, he doesn't want that. He doesn't want to be some kind of walking celebrity pastor going along through the roads in Jerusalem. He is only concerned, and this is what we see in the life of Jesus, he's only concerned with doing the will and seeing the glory of his Father be made known on the earth. It's all he's interested in. The will of the Father and the glory of his Father being manifest, being made known, being visible, coming to pass on the earth. For Jesus to pray to be glorified, it's really interesting, isn't it? It implies that it's actually plausible for him to be ascribed glory in the first place. Father, glorify your son. It implies that he is God. It implies that he is God because he is. He's one part of the three in one Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And Jesus prays to be glorified. Back in chapter 13, at the beginning of Jesus' farewell conversation with his disciples, and just after Judas leaves the room, 
The betrayer walks out because Jesus has highlighted what is going to happen. Jesus says this. He says, now the Son of Man is glorified and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself and will glorify him at once. You can read that again afterwards to get your head around that. That's uh, John 13, 31 and 32. But what Jesus is saying is that the glory of the Son of God is interlocked, interlocked, caught up in, married with the glory of God. The glory of the Son is caught up in the glory of the Father, is caught up in the glory of the Holy Spirit. You cannot separate them. They are glorious, altogether glorious. The glory of Jesus is interlocked with the glory of his Father. That's why Jesus prays like this. And as the hour approaches, it's a wee phrase that's used, isn't it? As the hour approaches. What was that? It was the hour of his death. We're making a journey towards Easter again, towards Good Friday. We're going to remember that hour, those hours that Jesus died for us. And we read here that as the hour approaches, the hour of his crucifixion, what we see is Jesus revealing that his obedience his sacrificial death, then his resurrection and exaltation will bring glory to God. You see, in John's gospel, John uniquely reveals that the glorification of Jesus begins not at an empty tomb, but at the cross, that we see the glory of God at Calvary. Not just when death is defeated, but as the Son of God hangs, as he's lifted high for the sins of the world, that the glory of God is made known to all who would see him all who would hear about what he was doing, the glory of God at the cross. Back in chapter, chapter 12, Jesus says this very thing. He says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. My time has come. The hour has come for the Son of God to be glorified. And then Jesus says this, very truly I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed, but if it dies, it produces many seeds. See, Jesus knows that God's magnificence, God's excellence, his supremacy and majesty, the weightiness of his authority and power is going to be supremely demonstrated as he hangs on the cross. The death of the Son of God, God is about to showcase his glory. Isn't that incredible? That's what we want to do this Easter time. God, showcase your glory. Show the world. Show us and show the world. Showcase your glory. The Son of God hanging on a cross for us. That God would do this. That he would die. That he would give his life in our place. That great exchange. His life for us. He who knew no sin, remember? that he would become sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God, that he would hang for us, but the death would be defeated, that the grave would be no more. Glory to God. We pray, God, this Easter, showcase your glory. Show us it again and demonstrate it to this world. In verses four to five, Jesus continues to pray. He says, I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world began. You see, the work of the Father through the Son is all about God's glory. 
You still with me? A few people woke up. That's good. You're still going. You're still tracking. Okay. You're still tracking. Secondly, I think what we see here is this. God's glory in eternal life. God's glory in eternal life. We could become a little bit disillusioned, okay? If, if all that we thought that was happening here in this moment was merely, as one commentator puts it, a lonely play in which the Father and the Son indulge for purposes of mutual self-glorification, detached from the world within which the event of the cross takes place. We would become disillusioned if we thought that all that was going on in this little moment here was the Father and the Son glorifying each other just for their own sake. There would be a sense from our hearts of what, you know, what's the point in that, God, if you're just glorifying each other within the Godhead? If it's just all about you and it has nothing to do with us, if we're detached from this? But that's not what's happening here. This is not that. This glory moment is not detached from us. It's not detached from you and from me. You see, God's glory is seen in the impartation of life to sinners like us. If the glory of the Son is interlocked with the glory of the Father and the glory of the Father and the Son is interlocked with the eternal life that they bring to us, then the glory of God is seen, demonstrated in our eternal life by the power and the rebirth of the Holy Spirit. See, the Father has sent his Son and the Son has laid down his life for us that we might have fullness of life here on earth and eternal life in the age to come. The glory of God is seen in our eternal life. Do you know that God is glorified in your eternal life? God is glorified in your life. Remember, you were once dead. Dead in your sins, spiritually dead, flatlining. But by the power of the Holy Spirit, through the work of the Son, he brought you back to life. And God is glorified through your life. Don't ever forget that. Your life is a walking demonstration of the power of God and his glory is within you. It radiates from you, or at least it should Show the world the glory of God in your own salvation, in your own eternal life. Speaking of of himself, Jesus says to his father in verse two, if you're following along, he says, for you granted him, that's himself, authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all of those that you have given to him. So Jesus speaks about eternal life and the glory of God. Two quick things about eternal life. It's from above. We know that it comes from the father. It's the life of the kingdom. We can't earn it or achieve it or find it anywhere on earth. It only comes from the Father. Eternal life is from heaven. It's from God. It comes from him. But then the second thing here, eternal life is to know the Father and to know the Son. This is really interesting because, yes, we know that eternal life is everlasting life. We will have life without end in the glory of God and the majesty of God, and it will be wonderful beyond measure. We will share in everlasting life. 
But there's more to it than just that everlasting element to it. If that's all we wait for, if all we want to do is escape this life and get to heaven, where it'll all one day be okay, if that's all that we're waiting for, then I think we're missing out on the nature of eternal life that Jesus describes here in John 17. Look what Jesus says in verse 3. He says, now this is eternal life. This is eternal life that they know you, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So to have eternal life is to know God. It's to know him, to know the Son. We have been created to experience God. We've been made to know him. Before this life ends, as we walk on this planet, we've been made to know God, to be in communion, fellowship with him, that we would be transformed in his presence, that we would know God, that the more that we know him, the more we love him. The more we love him, the more we trust him. The more we trust him, the more we step into the plans and the purposes that he has for us. The more we trust him, the more we glorify him with all that we have. So eternal life is not simply an end goal. It begins now. Welcome to eternal life. Are you enjoying it? Some of you are. If you're a visitor here, I'm trying hard with the church, you know, to respond a little bit. Um, we're so Northern Irish in Northern Ireland, aren't we? And we just try to get a wee bit of response, yeah. We, we um, do you enjoy eternal life? It begins now, it's, be it's begun. You're not just waiting to leave this earth and experience it, it has begun. The kingdom life is here. You're in it. You're in it. Let's know God. Let's walk with him. The more we know him, the more we love him, the more we love him, the more we experience the fullness of the life that he brings us now. And God is glorified in that. God is glorified in that. And so finally, um, thirdly, how do we respond to all of this? What should our response be to the glory of God prayed for and pursued by Jesus in this prayer? And as we begin this little series, well, I want a heart like Moses in Exodus 33. Moses who prayed, who asked, who declared, who shouted out, now show me your glory. It's the audacity of Moses. Imagine, Moses walked with God. God used him in incredible ways to lead the people of God in the Old Testament. And yet Moses had this really audacious ask of God. And he said, God, I want more. Show me your glory. I want to know what it looks like. I want to see it. I want to feel it. I want to live in it. The audacity of Moses. I love it. I love the audacity of Moses to ask that. Show me your glory. But of course, Moses couldn't see the physical glory of God and live. He couldn't. He couldn't stand before it. But you know what? He has a heart that's zealous, passionate, eagerly designed, desiring to see the magnificence, 
to see the beauty, to see the excellence, the majesty, the splendor, and the glory of God. That's what his heart longs for. And I love it. At one point in my early Christian life, there was a song, some of you might remember this, um, by a Christian band who I loved, um, called Third Day, and the song was Show Me Your Glory. Show Me Your Glory. It was a bit of a soundtrack that was on repeat in my life. I was zealous, passionate, eager to see the glory of God in my life. In my generation, I still am. I just don't listen to that song as much. But that song, those lyrics encapsulated much of my experience as a passionate young believer with this glory-fueled faith in God. And it goes like this. I caught a glimpse of your splendor in the corner of my eye. The most beautiful thing I'd ever seen. It was like a flash of lightning reflected off the sky. And I know I'll never be the same again. Show me your glory. Send down your presence. I want to see your face. Show me your glory. Majesty shines about you. I can't go on without you. When I climb down the mountain and get back to my life, I won't settle for ordinary things. I'm going to follow you forever. For all of my days. I won't rest. I won't rest until I see you again. Show me your glory. Send down your presence. I want to see your face. Show me your glory. Majesty shines about you. I can't go on without you. Guitarist from Third Day, Mark Lee, he wrote this about those lyrics. He said, both Moses and Peter shared similar experiences. God revealed himself to Moses and Peter witnessed Jesus in all his glory at the transfiguration and their lives were never the same again. Never the same again. And he says, I think that this is what happens with all Christians on some level. We get a glimpse of how awesome God is and we can't ever settle again for the ordinary things of this world. Going to be honest, put it out there, might get critiqued for this, but I think it is a massive problem in the church. People do not desire to see the glory of God. They really don't. Because if they did, things would change forever in our wee country, as Leah put it earlier. Things would change forever. We'd never be the same. We'd never be the same. People play. They play at Christianity. We play with God. He's one part of our lives. He's not everything. I think the opening part of this prayer is inviting us back into the glory of God. That that would be what we desire above and beyond anything else. Anything else. I don't want to settle for anything less than the glory of God displayed among us. Show me, show us your glory, Lord. Churches are struggling. Some are disappearing. Show us your glory, God. Reveal your glory in this day, in our generation, you young adults. Be about the glory of God. Show the world. You show them. 
You show the world what it means to know God. His glory, his power, his majesty. That that's what you're living for. Show me your glory. The world tries, tries so hard to portray the good life. The good life. They hold it out to us, but they ignore the God of all life. God, show us your glory. Show us your glory. Take us up the mountain. Give us the audacity of Moses. Show us your glory.